In light of the increase in mobile web usage, lightweight, speedy websites are becoming increasingly imperative. This is the case if you happen to have a website or need one that focuses entirely on content, a static website may be for you. I'll give you the details. Plus, today I'll walk you through the various types of logos, ranging from the word mark to the pictorial brand mark, along with some basic guidelines for which brands these typically work best with. All this and more on The Rightly Designed Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is The Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is the Rightly Designed Show. So today I wanted to take a little bit of time initially to talk about something that is growing in prominence on the web, especially with developers, but now it's becoming quite a bit more mainstream again as it begins, as it continues to uh, become more prominent. Uh, And that is static websites. So if you're familiar with the concept of a static website, that's essentially what the web was when it was first released. What would happen is you'd go to a website and it would serve up a static HTML page. What that is, is just a document that's sitting on a server, a .html document that has all the markup that tells the browser how to render that particular page. That's a, that is a completely static page. As the internet kind of started to evolve, however, and as you got things like WordPress and Drupal and Joomla and all these different CMSs as we would call them, you begin to see a lot of website pages that are being dynamically generated. Uh, So what that requires is, of course, for you, the user, to hit the website. The website processes that request. It has to go to a database to gather all that data that that needs to be displayed on that page, come back to you and then, or, you know, on the server, and then actually display all of that information dynamically. All of that has enabled us to have things, again, like WordPress and more advanced CMSs and ways to manage our and maintain our content. The only downside to that and why people are now starting to, or in an increasing measure, starting to try to shift back to a more static approach is that all that takes time. It takes time to, for the database to actually have that information queried. It takes time for, you know, PHP or whichever actual script has to write out that information after it's retrieved it from the database. All of it takes time and for a little bit of a slower website. Now, for most of us, we don't notice that as being slow. We're talking about milliseconds in most of these cases. But as it turns out, if you if you're actually able, if you're actually wanting to create a website that's very basic in the sense that it's just basic content, not a lot of server heavy or not a lot of crazy functionality that needs to be added to the website. Sometimes a static website can actually be the way to go for a number of different reasons. One, it's very simple and easy to maintain and upkeep. Uh, Number two is it's lightning fast because what these new generators are doing is that rather than actually, you know, working in something like a CMS that has to, you know, save everything to a database, it actually generates static files natively. So that what that means is it just creates a page when you change content, 
It's kind of like changing a file on your computer. It just saves that to the server. And then when somebody actually requests a specific page, it just serves that page rather than, again, compiling something through a database and all that other technical stuff. So there's an interesting, um, there's an article over in Smashing Magazine that was actually wrote, written a couple of years back, which helps to kind of uh, encapsulate uh, where we've come from and where we are now with static websites. So I'll just read a, just a portion of it. It says, when static was it. The first, the first website ever, Tim Berner-Lee's homepage uh, for the World Wide Web, was static. A website, back th uh, website back then was a folder of HTML documents that consisted of just 18 tags. Browsers were simple, uh, were simple document navigators that would fetch HTML from a server and allow the end user to navigate them by following hyperlinks. The web was fundamentally static. As browsers evolved, so did HTML, and gradually the limitations of pure static websites started to show. Initially, websites were just plain unstyled documents, but soon they grew into carefully designed objects with graphical headers and complex navigation. By that point, managing each point of a website at its own document stopped making sense, and templating, la templating languages entered the picture. It also quickly became evident that reserving HTML for structure and CSS for style was not enough of an abstraction to keep the content of a website, the stories, products, gallery items, etc., separate from the design. Around the same time, SQL-based relational databases started going mainstream, and for many online companies, the database became the most uh, an almost holy resting place for all of their content, guarded by vigilant, long-bearded database administrators. Desktop applications such as Dreamweaver and FrontPage offered solutions for building content-driven websites through WYSIWYG editors, where pages could be separated into reusable parts, such as navigation, headers, and footers, and, where some, and, and to where some content could be put into the database. In some ways, fatally flawed as they were, there were the original static website generators, building websites from templates, partials, media libraries, and even some SQL databases, and publishing them via FTP as static files. As late as 2004, I had the unique experience of working on a major content-driven website with tens of thousands of pages spread across different editorial groups, all managed via Dreamweaver. So Dreamweaver is actually an Adobe product. It used to be actually a macromedia project, uh, a product way back uh, when it was kind of in its heyday. But Dreamweaver is kind of a dra drag and drop, uh, more visual way to actually design and lay out websites. Before you had a lot of these website builders, they were kind of the initial drag and drop type approach to designing and laying out websites. It says, even if Dreamweaver could, to some degree, integrate with a database, it had no content model, offering no sense of content being separate from the design, each half being editable independently with the appropriate tools. The most mainstream answer to all of these problems was the LAMP stack and CMSs such as WordPress, Drupal, and Joomla. All these played an incredibly important role in moving the web forward, especially uh, enabling the Web 2.0 phenomenon in which user-generated content became a driving factor for a lot of websites. Users went from following hyperlinks to ordering products, participating in communities, and creating content. So all that to say that today, we've everything has become so content-heavy that we're doing so much with our websites that it just stopped making sense for a lot of people to actually rely upon a static approach to be able to generate and maintain content. 
So now today, however, there's still some need, and again, it's it's growing for people to actually want static websites. Now, one of the kind of compromises between the two is something that's a almost similar concept that you've probably heard of or maybe seen or even have implemented on your website right now, especially if you're using something like WordPress, is caching. So W3 caching, I think, is one of the probably the most prominent, most popular caching tools. But the concept of caching is fairly similar in that you still have a database and still have all of your information and data that is saved on a server. Um, but what it does is from time to time, it'll actually go through and generate a static page known as a cached page or a cached version of that web page and save it to the server so that when a person hits that page, it serves up that cached already generated version, which was technically supposed to be faster than actually having the, the server compile or actually render that page out every single time. But again, the whole idea behind doing some of these static type website uh, type website formats is that you're actually everything is static. There is no server having to actually generate files on the back end that you have to wait for people to actually render. It's all instant this way. So, and the reason again, this is starting to become a little bit more prominent. It's been very prominent with a lot of developers. Is for people who are wanting really simple content-driven websites. So if it's just a basic blog or if it's just something that doesn't need like an online shop, it doesn't need to expand you know, into lots of different widgets and functionality. If content is really the focus of the site, it's something that a lot of times you can actually get away with uh, an, approach, an actual static-driven approach. So one of the biggest hurdles to actually doing a static-based website is that there's never really been any really user-friendly uh, way to manage this, right? It's been really popular with developers because developers will jump into the command line and they'll edit, you know, files directly on the server and they'll go through that. So it's not really a big deal for a developer. Um, but however, now there's a number of different services starting to surface that actually have really clean WordPress-esque uh, user interfaces that you can actually go in with a WYSIWYG editor and edit these text documents, again, free of the server and everything's lightning fast because, again, you're not having to wait for the server to actually generate content for you. And it's fast not only on the front end but the back end as well. So there's a, a service I came across recently called Dato, and it's datocms.com. And again, I'll leave the link to this in today's show notes. But it's really interesting because they have, they're one of the first I've seen. I think there's others out there, but they've probably done it the best where they've actually made it in such a way as to make it extremely simple to actually manage and maintain and admin an entire website that is static. So some of the different ways that they handle this. Number one, say so you create a, a Dato CMS administrative area that fits exactly the needs of your website. So they do have some specific types of content you're able to create. Again, it's largely blogging, but you are able to customize it and configure it. Uh, number two, editors, cha uh, editors change the contents of the website inside a nice web interface, just like they're used to uh, with WordPress. So again, it's very it's similar to the experience with WordPress. Again, you don't have things like tons of plugins that you can you know, way expand the functionality of this site. But again, uh, it's very similar in the way that it actually edits content, similar to the way that WordPress does. Number three, using our plugins, all the stored data uh, gets transformed into local markdown slash config files so that they can be digested by the static website generator just as is or written by hand. So again, it's got that flexibility whether or not someone's a developer or somebody, you know, doesn't really know code at all. Uh, they've got, you know, all those different things worked in. So, and then some of the, the other points, which I actually list out on this website, which are really interesting, 
In terms of why, you know, what are the main reasons why somebody would consider this? I'd say for probably 95 people out, 95% of people out there, or 90% of people out there, the vast majority of people are going to need a WordPress-based website. Uh, there's just, just because of even just for the, the need of being able to expand later, you know, if there's uh, extra features that you're going to need at, at a shop or, you know, you're going to need uh, people to be able to do like a community or, you know, there's just a lot of things out there that you would, that would, WordPress would be required in order to accomplish. But if static is something that would actually work, if it would work for your specific situation, then there's a lot of different benefits to it. So number one is they're unbreakable websites. So you don't have to worry about a server configuration again because it's just serving static files. Number two is no security updates. There's nothing to update because it's just static files that will forever be recognized uh, by browsers. Infinitely scalable. So, you know, you never really have to worry about too many users or too many posts, you know, filling up a database because, again, there is no database. Uh, another great benefit is it's extremely easy to code. So if there's you're going to be working with a web developer to actually create a static website, they're very easy to create because, again, you're not having, you're not having to tie in database connections and everything else that is required of most websites. And probably one of the most... Uh, sought after reasons for a static website is instant loading times. And it really is. It's it's instant. There is no backlog. There's no time. The only thing you're really waiting for is the request, the time it actually takes to reach that URL. The file itself loading is near instant. Um, so anyways, really interesting concept to dive into, even if it doesn't necessarily sound like something that would fit your particular needs in terms of a website. It's still interesting to be aware of and also just to know, especially if you... You know, in the future, decide you want to do a really simple personal blog or something like that. A static website may actually be the way to go, and it's just helpful to be aware of the different, you know, concepts and ways of different of building websites that are out there. So today's main topic that I wanted to dive into is a really important one. If you currently have a brand, if you or if you're planning on building one, and as we all know. The logo design, the logo that accentuates your brand is very much the cornerstone. It's the point of contact wherein you are recognized by the world, essentially. So today I'm going to be diving into different types of logos and how they work best with different brands. But before I do that, I wanted to take a quick moment to mention today's sponsor, and that is FreshBooks. So if you do any type of invoicing, if you have clients, if you track time, or even if you just need to be able to do reporting and taxes and you're just sick and tired of trying to use like just a regular old spreadsheet, I would highly recommend that you try out FreshBooks. FreshBooks makes it extremely easy not only to invoice people, but also, as I mentioned before, to track expenses, to track time, to have everything really financial about your business in one easy to access place. So the best, uh, the best case I could probably give to you for trying out FreshBooks is to do exactly that. Try out FreshBooks and see if it works best for you. I think you'll find it extremely useful. So as a listener to the program, FreshBooks is going to give you a 30-day free trial so you can jump in there, try it out, see all the features that it has, and see which ones work best for you. And if you would like to do that, you can go to gofreshbooks.com slash designed. Again, that's gofreshbooks.com slash designed and enter, and enter rightly designed in the how did you hear about us section. Have a question for the show? Feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question or call 888-727-1496.
Okay, and the main topic that I wanted to get into today was the concept of the different types of logos that exist and trying to figure out which ones work best for different brands. So you might have a personal brand, you may have a corporate brand, you may have a brand that has a lot of different products, you may have a a brand that has a lot of different services or a combination of both. And all of those things can play a different role on the type of logo that's going to fit best. So if even if you haven't started yet, of course, this would be a great thing to be well aware of is the different types of logos that work well. But not just that, even if you already have a brand and you may be interested in rebranding or even shifting some of that uh, brand identity, there's different brand identity elements to better fit into the brand you're trying to create. All of these things are really helpful to be aware of. Now, none of the things I'm about to explore are an exact science. So in the past, I've, I've talked about color and how different colors have different meanings and moods and different uses. Just like with color, these things are all subjective. So no two people are going to come away with the exact same impression of a logo. So what appeals to one will not necessarily appeal to, a, to another, just like as we know well with the inkblot case studies and scientific research that has been done. Two people can look at the exact same imagery and come away with two extremely different views of what that means or stands for. However, there are specific things that we can do that we can be intentional with to ensure that whatever logo design we end up with best and most accurately accentuates the brand we are trying to reflect. So what I'd like to do is just read a couple of quotes from some really well-known logo designers from throughout the uh, throughout the years who helped to encapsulate a little bit of what a logo is and the importance of a logo or a logo mark. So the first one is from uh, Steph uh probably going to pronounce this individual's name wrong, but Steph Geisbuehler. And this person says, the trademark, although a most important element, can never tell the whole story. At best, it conveys one or two notions or aspects of the business. The identity has to be supported by visual language and a vocabulary. Malcolm Greer says, form and counterform, light and tension, expanded meaning, that is not exhausted at first glance. You need to know the enterprise inside and out. Luis Philae says, a logo is a typographic portrait, the face of a business. I talk to clients at length, learning everything about them, who they are and what is important to them, and then translate that into a logo. A great logo appears effortless and is of course, anything but. So this is actually one of the reasons why I've mentioned it at length in previous episodes and why even to this day I still cringe when I hear people being recommended or actually going to logo design concepts uh, or contests uh, or, you know, trying out different templates or stock logos because there is so much that goes into creating an effective logo that symbolizes that properly symbolizes a brand. And sometimes that can just be as simple as just a couple of letters. But creating something that is unique, that accurately fits the brand is imperative. So another one is by Bart Crosby, who says a logo type or a symbol should express the fundamental essence of an organization or a product or a service. The visual manifestation of its nature, its aspirations, its culture, its reason for being. So all of the different aspects that comprise a brand. And I've talked about this at some length in previous episodes and all the different aspects of a brand, how it goes far beyond just the brand identity, just the visual elements. It goes to the very core, the culture of your organization or to the way that you run your business. 
all of the things that are at the foundation or the basis and the attitude with which those things are done need to be incorporated into a final logo design. They have to be that final mark, that final seal that shows that this is what this company stands for and that's how and how it offers products and services. Another one is we are looking for the most direct connection between an idea and the creation of a form. And the last one is Sagai Haviv. And uh, this individual says, identity design is not about what, uh, what one likes or dislikes. It's about what works. And so if you've uh, listened to the program before, you probably have heard uh, the episode I did a little while back that I, would do- I dove into the most dangerous words in design, and those are I like. So again, when it comes to any type of design, especially a logo design, it is imperative that personal likes and and dislikes are set aside for what best fits the brand that you're trying to create. Okay, so next I wanted to dive into the different type of logos that there are out there. And I'm going to break this down into five categories. And you've probably seen a number of different examples out there that you can think of. I'm going to list a couple here as uh, as I go through these. Um, But there's five main categories. And the first one is a word mark. So a word mark is probably what you would imagine. It's just a word. So for example, Google is a word mark. There's no extra graphics. There's no symbols. There's nothing that surrounds it. It's just the word Google. And in its, uh, in its um, very simple modern typeface, and then of course with the different colors that comprise the different letters. And you don't even necessarily need that. There's plenty of logos out there, uh, letter mark or word marks, I should say, Uh, that don't even use a lot of color, that are just one color and work really well. So the second type is letter forms. So letter forms are something that use different letters, as you might guess, to form an overall shape. So Univision is one. Uh, IBM is another, if you remember the IBM. They're just letters that are formed. So a lot of times this will incorporate, you know, uh, initials sometimes or maybe just the start, the first letter of a, of a particular brand. So for, exa- for example, if you've seen the Rightly Designed logo, that is a letter form. That is just the RD formed within a square that is used alongside its word mark. The third type is emblems. So an emblem is a mark which the company name uses in conjunction with a pictorial element. So some sort of imagery or graphic or illustration in which uh, the company's name can be seen within. So TiVo would be one where you can actually see a little uh, character with those letters within that specific uh, graphic. And another one that's pretty popular today, and you'll, you'll probably notice more than most of the other ones, is the pictorial mark. So a pictorial mark is just an image. It's an image that represents that particular brand. Now sometimes, as I will cover here in a little bit, sometimes this pictorial mark will uh, accompany an actual word mark, right? So it's not necessarily true that you have to only use one of these. A lot of times they will be used in conjunction. But a pictorial mark is something like Apple. Um, It would be something like Twitter, something that is recognizable now, obviously, Apple's logo is an apple. Twitter is a bird. So it's things that you can actually recognize as freestanding elements. And then the fifth one is an abstract or symbolic mark. 
And these are still pretty popular today, but mainly among really corporate brands. So you're going to, you know, things like Chase, Sprint, and then probably one of the most well-recognized, one of the most well-recognizable ones would be Nike. These are things that don't necessarily reflect anything in particular. They're just, again, abstract symbols that are used to represent that particular brand. Okay, so now that I've given a little bit of an overview of some of the different types of logos out there, I'm going to go through them again, but I'm going to break down when and in which context it would be a good idea to consider these different types of logos. And again, as I mentioned at the uh, earlier in the show, not necessarily an exact science, but some uh, initial thoughts that may help steer you in the right direction. Okay, so the first is a word mark. And you remember we went through and I just touched on, you know, Google's a good example of a word mark. Now, word marks are going to work really well for personal brands. One of the tricky things with a personal brand is that sometimes, you know, the, the tendency is to want to incorporate some, some sort of imagery with every brand. But that's not always possible unless you have something very clear that that really ties, you know, the person in question, the personal brand that's being developed with an element you almost start with, you start conflicting uh, the meaning of the brand. So for example, if you're, you know, if you had a personal brand and, you know, you were, I don't know, a financial consultant and your, your logo was a tree, well, then it starts sending mixed messages. What does that tree stand for? I mean, it might have some symbolic, you know, meaning to it, but it doesn't initially tell someone that this is a person that we're talking about. So for a personal uh, a personal brand actually works really well with a word mark. And a lot of times what you can do is typography is a powerful design tool. It's very underestimated and it's very underutilized. A lot of people just really want to tack on some sort of extra imagery, which can work great in some circumstances and situations. But sometimes just an effectively well-selected typeface can do the job. And you can sometimes even pair typefaces depending on how long the name or the word is. And you can come out with some pretty powerful, striking uh, uh, different logo forms that are just nothing but words. This also works really well. uh, It works really well, obviously, for a personal brand that may not necessarily have a defining iconic element that can be used uh, alongside the word. But it can also be for companies that don't necessarily have an iconic element. So, I mean, even just take a moment to think. I mean, I keep using Google as an example, but it's a really good one. What would you use if you were Google as your iconic element? The first one that comes to mind for me would be a magnifying glass, search. However, that's a little bit cliche. It's been done a few times. It could be kind of misconstrued with some of the you know other search engines that are out there. It's not necessarily unique to Google. Um, so part of what, it would, what would make it difficult for a company like Google is that they do so much. And part of what a brand should convey, and this is important, including the brand identity. It should never stick to or be connected with a particular product or service. So let me say that again. A brand should never be connected to or reliant upon a particular brand or service. Take this for example. Imagine if Xerox decided to connect uh, their brand and their iconic element was a copier machine. What would they do 10 years down the line when that particular type or style of copy machine was obsolete. 
They'd have to do rebranding. They'd have to restructure things. Not to mention the fact that they're not the only ones who sell copy machines. There's a ton of other companies that do the exact same thing. So what needs to be conveyed in a brand isn't necessarily, again, what is being sold, because that's just the means through which a problem is solved, but rather the unique differentiating benefit, the timeless quality in that lo- needs to be shown in that logo um, so that whether it's, you know, you're doing stationery or copy machines or, you know, doing accounting, it's the way that the heart and soul of that brand is what needs to be conveyed in that logo design, not necessarily the service itself, the service or product itself. So that's a little bit of a side note. But again, a word mark is a great way to go if you don't necessarily have an iconic element to associate with that brand. Okay, so now to a letter form. Now a letter form can work in tandem with or sometimes as a substitute to a word mark. Um, so as I mentioned before, Rightly Designed currently has a letter form. It's got the R and the D. And this again can work great if you don't necessarily, very similar to a word mark, if you don't necessarily have uh, a pictorial or uh, iconic element to associate with that brand. Now the difference uh, is that you can get a little bit more creative. With a word mark, you can do some, but you have to be really careful that that word mark is going to re- maintain a readability aspect to it. So you can't do a huge bunch of calligraphy. You can't, you know, interwo- interweave a whole bunch of different patterns or anything within that word, because mainly because it's going to be long. Now with a letter form, you can get a little bit more creative. You can incorporate... Uh, some different interesting shapes that go through to form those letters. Because you're working with less letters, you're typically going to be working with anywhere from one to three letters. And so because of that, you end up with all these different um, ways that you can actually actually use those letters to create interesting shapes and different styles. So in what context would you use a letter form? A letter form is going to be usable in pretty much the same sphere of use as the word mark. So again, uh, as I touched on previously, if it's not going to be something that needs a pictorial element, then a a letter form can work. Like pretty much any other case, a word mark can. Again, the benefit to the letter form itself is that you have a little bit more flexibility with incorporating different styles. You don't have to be as focused on readability. And in fact, you don't even have to be. It can be more subtle. It doesn't necessarily have to, you don't necessarily have to be able to tell that that is those two letters. They can even serve as halfway as an abstract style as well. Um, Even FedEx itself, which technically is a word mark, has a little hidden arrow symbol built into into that logo. So there's a lot of different things that you can do. And you can do things like that uh, with letter forms even more than you can with word marks. All right, so emblems. Emblems are a little less common, but an emblem is going to be something that has letters or words worked into it. So you can think of like BMW. It's a nice, it's a, it's a crest, it's a shape that's got the words, or the letters, I should say. BMW worked into it. Again, I mentioned previously TiVo, which had like a little, you know, image, like image of a TV with legs and antennas, and it's got the words TiVo in there with a little smiley face under the word, under, under the letters TiVo. So emblems are kind of like a cross between a pictorial mark or an iconic mark and a letter form because you're going to have the different letters in there or even a word mark. Sometimes it's going to be letters. Emblems, again, are going to be a little bit more rare. And emblems are going to work pretty well 
If you've got something that you are selling that has to portray a particular status, for example, BMW, it's uh, the style of the logo is a crest. It's something typically what you're going to find with higher end products or higher end brands is that they are trying to, their logos need to be portrayed as what's called uh, brand as badge or logo as badge, something that people they buy and they wear that brand specifically because it, you know, it infers a sense of, you know, uh, higher financial status or social status or whatever it is, or even the fact that they just care about quality, whatever it is. Um, brand as badge is something that's going to be more common with an emblem, a seal, something that's a little bit uh, higher quality. Now I mentioned TiVo. That's not necessarily something that is you know, people buy as for prestige. Um, however, in a lot of cases, emblems are used for those higher end types of brands. Okay. So a pictorial mark. And as I mentioned, this is what a lot of people think of when they think of a logo. Most people think of a pictorial mark. They think of Apple, they think of CBS, or they think of, you know, NBC's Peacock, or they think of Twitter or Greyhound. These are images. These are icons that actually represent the brand. So pictorial marks work great. They're at their best when there is a specific type of imagery that can convey the company itself, the company's brand identity. If there isn't, then they can be just the opposite. They could be the very anchor that weighs down that brand. So obviously for Apple, it was pretty straightforward. Their company is named Apple. Their iconic mark is an Apple. So it totally makes sense that that was something that they used. Now, if Apple were to have, you know, been created today, my guess is, this is just my guess, but if Apple came out today as a brand new software company, you know, a a startup with a whole bunch of funding to get, you know, their company off the ground, and they came out with a logo that was an Apple with with a bite taken out of it, I'm going to guess they probably would have been uh, criticized pretty heavily for that. Why do I say that? Because logos today and the way that they're being created has changed quite a bit. The way that logos are created today, uh, there's always a stylistic approach to how that that icon or that logo has been created. And the reason for that, the reason why such creative spins and twists have been overtaking so many of what, you know, icon, iconography and, you know, different types of logos that fit that style is because there's just so many brands today. There's tons and tons of brands. And so if you come out with a logo that is absolutely basic and simple to a fault, it risks being blending in with some, something else or being mistaken for something else. So it is a little bit tricky in today's day and age to come out with a brand identity system that is you know unique um, because as it has been said, there's nothing new under the sun. So we see that exact same thing happening with logo designs. However, Apple did it first. Apple was the first to come out with that type of style. And it's just kind of stuck th- uh, with them throughout the ages. So half of creating a good brand is just being estab- is establishing it, sticking with it, and uh, making sure that it fits in well with all the different brand identity elements. But back to the main point, which is that Pictorial marks are going to work best when there is a specific image, something that tie that is tied together with that brand and that brand's philosophy. When there's a specific image that helps uh, identify that brand, that is when a pictorial mark is going to be extremely effective. Okay, and the last kind 
that we're going to go over is, as I mentioned, abstract or symbolic marks. Now, for most new brands today, my general advice would be if I were to, you know, if I were asked to undertake a logo design project and they were, you know, and my client was asking for an abstract mark, my general advice, again, this is just rule of thumb. This doesn't apply to everyone. My general advice would be don't do it. Um, don't do an abstract logo mark. And the reason I say this is because if you, if you read a lot of the different studies and research today and even what different big brands are doing, um, people are as skeptical, and rightly so, as skeptical of corporations as they've ever been. And the reason is just because, you know, with TV and radio commercials and billboards constantly flooding the airwaves, you just constantly bombarded with advertisements. You're constantly bombarded with somebody trying to sell you something. And at the heart and soul of that is the corporate look. It's the corporate brand. It's the faceless entity that just wants you to buy something. And a lot of what's associated with that is just a bland corporate looking brand identity. That's why a lot of these different uh, corporate brands are trying to do what they call de-branding. Now, my argument would be it's not de-branding. It's just doing branding how you should be doing it honestly and with integrity. But it's being called de-branding, and they're trying to simplify and make more friendly and personal the brands as they're conveyed throughout all their brand identity and their brand touch points. Symbolic or abstract logo marks give a lot of brands a very corporate, bland faceless feel, especially if you're doing a personal brand. If it's if you're a coach or a consultant or an author or a speaker, I would highly recommend staying away from the abstract symbolic marks. Again, find something that fits. And this is part of why I say this is because a good logo design will accurately uh, you know, reflect that brand. It will accurately show what that brand stands for, even if they're just the letters. That's fine. That's something, at least it's something that people can walk away with and remember the letters to the company. Um, but an abstract symbolic mark doesn't stand, it doesn't convey or stand. It's a wasted opportunity. It's just a mark for the sake of making a mark. That is what you're going to get a lot of times if you go and you get like a stock logo off a website. It's just going to be this, you know, swooshy pattern or something like that. Now, again, there's always exceptions to this rule. The only reason I mention it is because in most cases, it's going to be a more effective uh, a, a more effective logo and a more effective branding element if it actually has something that ties to the brand. But again, there are exceptions. There's Nike. Nike is one of the most recognizable uh, abstract marks in the entire world. Now, that worked well for them. It was actually an in another episode, I may actually go through and tell you the actual, the whole story of how Nike actually got that logo. Um, but again, those are exceptions to the rule. In most cases, it's going to make sense to avoid the abstract type logo marks for the simple sake, uh, the, for the simple point that they just do not add anything to the overall logo. Again, you're better off doing just a very simplistic uh, word mark or letter mark that uses the typography and the color the color palette that's going to fit that brand best. The number one takeaway I would give you, if, if there's only one thing that you learn or you take away from this episode, it would be this, is that simplicity is by far, simplicity is by far the most important part of any logo design. I see so many logos out there that, again, oftentimes I hate to rail on uh, logo design contests, but a lot of times they're done through logo design contests and they got all sorts of gradients and filters and 
patterns and shapes and they're just so complicated. The more simple and the more clean and the more readable a logo can be, the more effective it will be. That's why if you are stuck, if you're in a position where this logo just doesn't really seem to be fitting the brand I'm trying to create or to portray, I would just cut it back to a word mark, pick out a good color scheme and allow it to kind of build on its own merits rather than, you know, trying to force it into a mold that it's not meant to fit into or that doesn't fit your brand best. So I do, I hope you found that useful. Hopefully it gives you a few pointers when it comes to actually getting brand identity elements designed, especially a logo design, as that can be an incredibly important process. And again, I'll probably dive into some other elements of logo design itself in future episodes. And again, this applies not only if you're a designer. In fact, it's it's much more if you're an actual business owner and you just want to make sure that you start getting your brand and your brand identity elements on track. So as always, if you have a question for the Rightly Designed show, you can visit rightlydesigned.com slash question, or you can call 888-727-1496. Again, that's 888-727-1496. If you'd like to call in and ask a question for the program, and I'm always more than happy to consider those for full-length episodes. So if you are enjoying the Rightly Designed show, I'd also really appreciate it if you took a quick moment to jump on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We really appreciate that, and we really do appreciate you listening to the program. So as always, thanks so much again for listening to the Rightly Designed show, and we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com show for links to these channels and more.